Hello, Reed here. A quick word before the sermon begins. We are back. Uh, and yes, we are still house churching. Uh, a word about that. Yes, I know it can be hard to stay committed to it, to the new different thing. The longer we do it, the less novel it becomes, the more we wonder what's the point anymore, the easier it would be to wrongly justify living as if the virus had ceased to be a big deal. But uh, just consider this for a second. When we made this drastic change to our services at the beginning of the fall semester, the U.S. was seeing an average of around 40 to 45,000 new cases of COVID each day uh, with around 1,000 daily deaths. That was back in August. In the past week at the beginning of the spring semester, the U.S. saw an average of between 200 and 250,000 new cases each day uh, with between three and 4,000 daily deaths deaths. Uh, so regardless of how accustomed we have become to this pandemic and how over it we might feel, things are actually multiple times worse now than they were then. So uh, even though there is a vaccine, we are still very much in the thick of it. And for the time being, we don't have any real cause to do CCF things differently than we've been doing them this year so far. Uh, so hear us. We, I, long for the day when we can all gather together again in Violet 1000. Uh, but the reality is that CCF is a potential perfect hotspot for a larger spreading event at Truman. Uh, yes, it is a sacrifice. It definitely feels like one. Uh, but the call to love our neighbor on this campus by being safe and precautious when it comes to the virus that trumps our desire to get everyone together for services and events. And again, that is a strong desire. Uh, so please bear with us. And also, I uh, just want to say that we do see immense goodness and value in gathering at House Church. Uh, remember that church isn't content. It's not merely the sermon or the songs. So we're not really being or doing church if all we do is find a podcast or a worship set online. The community, the gathering, that's where it's at. Uh, we just have to keep doing it in smaller pockets for now. So uh, the time is coming, and when it arrives, we will shift with all the wisdom and love that we have, but it's not here quite yet. So hold on. We're going to be okay. Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. And hello again. One more quick word of intro. We are back in Exodus again this semester. We hadn't planned on two semesters when we decided on Exodus last summer, but we also didn't know that we'd still be wandering in this pandemic wilderness come January. We originally decided on Exodus because the story of being delivered, wandering, and how that is both a freeing and terrifying place to be really resonated with how we were experiencing life with God in the pandemic. And um, well, we're still, we're still in that mode and there's plenty of Exodus that we didn't get to. So we are in Exodus again. Uh, so now, you know, uh, please stand if you would for our text today. This is Exodus 33, 18 through 23. 
And Moses said, Show me, pray, your glory. And he said, I shall make all my goodness pass in front of you, and I shall invoke the name of the Lord before you, and I shall grant grace to whom I grant grace, and have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he said, You shall not be able to see my face, for no human can see me and live. And the Lord said, Look, there is a place with me, and you shall take your stance on the crag. And so when my glory passes over, I shall put you in the cleft of the crag and shield you with my palm until I have passed over. And I shall take away my palm and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. This is God's what? Or now you behold me, now you don't. Or without glory, can goodness be enough? Or hungry, mungry, glory monster goes into recovery. In Exodus 32, while Mo- so this is going back to 32, while Moses was up on the mountain having a commandment powwow with God and taking his sweet time coming back down, uh, the people of Israel got restless. They said to Moses' kid brother Aaron, Make us gods that will go before us. For this man, Moses, we don't know what happened to him. And so Aaron took the gold that they had pilfered out of Egypt and made, of all things, a calf and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. It's understandable. Uh, For one thing, Moses could have been dead for all they knew. For another, uh, calves are, they're nice. We see them. We know what they're for. We know how to get them to do what we need. Uh, And remember that so far in the story, Israel's only formal introduction to Yahweh is the name he gave Moses at the bush. You remember that name? I am that I am. Or maybe I will be what I will be. The eternal present to be. Being itself. Nothing else. No appreciates fine cuisine. No enjoys long walks on the beach. Uh, No description of any kind, just I am being. So my question for you is that if you were told that's who God is, how would you have in mind to approach or worship him? You see what I mean? Calves, they're nice. But for as understandable as this golden calf incident might be, uh, it's still the very wrong move to make. Uh, The equivalent would be like this. It would be like a wedding and the bride and groom have just made their vows and the groom turns for a second to get the ring out of his pocket. And when he turns back, the bride is like making out with the best man in the middle of the ceremony. And really, it's not even the best man. It's just some stranger who was walking by in the park. That's what this golden calf situation is essentially like, which brings us then to Exodus 33, which begins with God very understandably saying, I'm out. He says, you all go on to the land I told you about, but I'm not going with you. You're on your own. Uh, To quote, I shall not go up in your midst for you are a stiff necked people. And what's more, he says, if but a single moment I were to go up in your midst, I would put an end to you. (laughs) Clearly, you weren't ready for this, so I'm going to spare us both the trouble and go. 
Uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said that to a Jewish mind, the worst thing that could happen when it came to the people's relationship with God or an individual's relationship with God, the worst thing wouldn't be to suffer his wrath. No, the worst thing would be for God to forsake us, to forsake you, to leave you. And maybe we at first think that's wrong because we've gotten a lot of really intense teaching on the wrath of God in our pasts. Uh, maybe, we, maybe we think that God's wrath really is the worst thing, but I think actually that we know that what Heschel says is true. We can tolerate many difficult things in our relationships with those we love. We can tolerate discipline, being put off. Uh, even we can tolerate a shouting match. Those, those may actually even signal the health of the relationship, but what we cannot endure is abandonment, is being left. So Moses says, please, please don't leave. He reminds God, these are your people, remember? And if you don't go with us, how will anyone know who you are or what you've done? So God relents. He says, Moses, I, I do know you by name. So I will go with you. And here we turn then to the specific text for today as Moses. Uh, well, I, I don't really know what exactly he's doing here, uh, but it seems like maybe he's kind of pressing his advantage while Yahweh is feeling agreeable. And Moses, uh, just after God agrees to go with him, he says, show me your glory. Show me, pray your glory. And I wonder what exactly do we think Moses is asking for here? Let's pause for a second. What, what would you mean if you asked God to show you his glory? What would you expect to follow that? What would you expect to see or hear or smell or experience if God agreed? The word here is kavod, uh, and it literally means like weight or weightiness or heaviness. Uh, and some say the idea is that the glory of God is like the essence of God. By seeing his glory... You understand what he's like and what he's about in the same way that if you saw the posters on middle school reads bedroom wall, my glory, you'd have known that I wanted to be like Michael Jordan and was all about skateboarding, which that's a contradiction. But, you know, so I so be it. I contradict myself. Uh, the posters revealed my personality and desires just as God's glory reveals himself. And so maybe this makes some sense then for Moses to ask to see God's glory. Maybe so that he could go and report to the people, uh, not just God's name this time, but something more of what God was like and about. I mean, after all, uh, it, it, it was the overwhelming mystery and the frustrating indescribability of God that at least partially led the people to make the calf in the first place, right? So maybe what Moses is asking is, hey, make yourself understandable, Scrutable in some way. You've told us your name, which we can't comprehend, by the way. You've, you've rescued us. You've given us commandments now. Now tell me, show me who you really are, which, which is understandable. And maybe that's fine as far as it goes. But, but maybe he was asking for more than that, though. No? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm, here's the thing. I am no stranger to seeking the glory of God. I was trained to be a glory seeker in the Pentecostal church that I grew up in, okay? So Wednesday nights and twice on Sundays, we gathered and we sang with fervor and with purpose and we cried out with loud voices for God to show us your glory. And with these words, I was taught uh, to seek an experience of the presence of God 
with intensity and conviction and sometimes uh, with desperation, the way that Sherlock Holmes sought Moriarty or Boromir sought the one ring or James Harden still seeks an NBA championship ring of his own. Show me your glory. I said it. We all said it over and over and over and we meant it. But what precisely did we mean? What were we anticipating so unceasingly and with so much sweat pouring down our foreheads? I think on the one hand, when we said, show me your glory, uh, we didn't really know what we were expecting, but that we'd know it when we experienced it. Something electric, something ecstatic, something like physiological, something immediate and unmediated, like, like the pulsing numbness that you can't pull away from when you put your hand on a live wire. <clears throat> Now, could we really have handled the unmediated presence of God, quote unquote? Uh, I have no idea because I'm going to be honest. I have no idea what unmediated presence of God really even means, uh, but I doubt it. Pretty sure we couldn't. But I don't know that there's anything wrong with wanting that, even naively trying to seek an experience of that. But on the other hand... I think there's something else. I think that maybe we and Moses were also asking for something with those words that we shouldn't have asked for. When Moses said, show me your glory, part of God's response was, you shall not be able to see my face for no human can see me and live. When you look someone, think about the last time you looked someone full in the face. When you look someone full in the face, what are you doing? What are you intending? Like seriously, for as uncomfortable and dangerous even as it can be, isn't it the face that we look at uh, when we probe, when we investigate, when we are seeking to really understand someone? So, so maybe Moses is asking, not just like, I want to feel you like a live wire, but I want to I comprehend you. Maybe even... Uh, I, I want to examine you. I want to perceive you all at once and understand you. Maybe that's what he means uh, with this whole thing about the face. And, and I wonder if we, when we begged God to show us your glory, what we in my church were really after was, was, was a comprehension that was undeniable. Like, I wonder if we wanted something that was not merely affirming or reassuring, uh, but confirming and crystallizing. We wanted to be sure, to know, to be certain. And if God's glory showed up and we, and we looked him in the face, then we would have it. It may even be a kind of endorsement of whatever things that we were believing or thinking or saying or doing. And, and I know that you guys, probably a lot of you didn't use these words growing up in Pentecostal churches, but, but do you think maybe did we want God to show us his glory in this sense in, in 2020 in the throes of a pandemic? Uh, maybe we didn't use those words, but did we want to know how it would turn out? Did we want to perceive the whole and receive some validation that the way that we made sense of things was the correct way? Did we want certainty that our answers were the right ones? Did we want some endorsement that our candidate was the right one? In the midst of a most unstable year, uh, I, I think, yeah, we wanted God to show us his glory. We wanted to see it all. 
Uh, but God did not show us his face in the pandemic, just like he didn't show Moses his face on the mountain. But he didn't just say no to us either. He didn't abandon us to our fate. I believe he said to us what he said to Moses. Did you notice God's response, by the way, to Moses' requests when he said, show me your glory? God said, I will make all my goodness pass in front of you. Moses asked for glory. God says, I will make my goodness pass in front of you. And in a year when we struggle and stumble and are confused and doubt, if we can't see God's glory, my question is, can his goodness be enough? The meek goodness of a quarantine care package, Rachel Whitehouse, or an unexpected FaceTime from a friend when you're in isolation, uh, Carson Lackey, thanks for that call, or uh, a midnight prayer walk in the mist uh, with, with a partner, a co-laborer for the gospel, Conrad Salisbury. Can we learn to rejoice in goodness rather than seek after glory? And even, even when the goodness passes by Moses on the mountain, that even is almost more than he can bear. Like he can only get just a glimpse as he's hiding in the cave from it. And I know that too. A goodness that, that is so humble and loving that when you encounter it, it's almost more than you can bear. And it may look like this normal person in front of you that you see day after day, but you, but you know that God is in it. So God says to Moses, look, there is a place with, with me and you shall take your stance on the crag. And so when my glory passes over, so see here, he's now saying glory, but it's, I think, reoriented from Moses' original idea. Now, like almost transmuted through the lens of God's goodness. Moses asked for glory. God said, my goodness. And now this thing is being called glory, but that we've been told is in essence his goodness. That's what's passing by. And, and God says, I will shield you with my palm until I have passed over and I shall take away my palm. And what you're going to see is my back, but my face will not be seen. In Moses' uh, experience of God's goodness here on the side of this mountain, uh, it's both intimate and removed. The word palm there, uh, which is what God protects Moses with, it, it refers to the soft middle part of the inside of your hand. Go ahead and touch that. Like open up one hand and use your fingers and touch that soft middle part. So it's almost like God is cradling Moses in his hand there in that cave. And yet even as he cradles him, he also passes by so that as Moses finally peeks out, all he can glimpse uh, is God's back just before he rounds the bend. And I think maybe it's another way of saying the similar thing, like you will not uh, see my glory, but here is my goodness here in the palm of my hand. Full certainty and comprehension, uh, a look dead in the face, Moses uh, CCF kids, God says, that would be the death of you. Full certainty and comprehension, a look dead in the face, that would be the death of you, especially when the life that I intend for you is to be birthed by trust in me and following Jesus. 
And these, of course, demand not seeing everything. So you cannot be ahead of me and you cannot look me full in the face. And I wonder what if what needs to be revealed to us isn't the final word on God and the world so that we finally know it all. Like what if what needs to be revealed to us is just how little we can actually know or perceive or control? What would happen then? Because it could be that there, nested in the cleft of that rock with God's goodness passing by and us emerging just to live in the wake of it, there uh, we stand like a man, intoxicated by the cloud of a woman's glorious perfume. And the only thing to do is follow our noses on the trail of this new obsession. Maybe that could be the perfect soil in which humility could take root, this, this not knowing. And maybe there that humility could grow into a blossoming trust. The position demands... Uh, not only not seeing and therefore trust, but it also uh, demands something else. Because when you find yourself staring at someone's back and yet you still want to see them, the natural thing that you'll find yourself doing uh, is following. It demands that we trust and that we follow. Uh, a French rabbi from the 13th century talks about this notion of seeing God's back as like seeing the lingering light of where the essence of God has passed. In other words, uh, he reads this verse about God's back or his hind parts as God saying, you cannot see me fully, but you can see where I just was. Like Jacob dreaming of a ladder to the heavens only to wake up and say, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. Sometimes uh, a life of faith means uh, it's like Sherlock Holmes on the trail of Moriarty. It's always coming to a place or a moment and feeling so sure that God was leading you there and even just was there himself only for him to have slipped around the corner just as you entered the room. But what that means is actually encouraging, I think. It means that you don't have to have all of the answers and that as you sit hidden in the cleft of the rock, completely failing to understand God at all, Take heart because you're in the company of Moses. And it means uh, that, that God is indeed leading you. He is leading you, even if you don't comprehend exactly where or what for. And it means that when you catch that scent, you develop an obsession and a nose and you follow where it leads. And it may not be to the glory that you expected, but I promise that it will lead to goodness. And that's not to say that it's all smoke and mirrors and impression and half guesses and uncertainties in a life with God, though again, I really do think we should get more comfortable with these. While we have this Exodus 33 and no human can see me and live and you can only see my back, we also have Exodus 24. And I wish I had more time for it, but, but Moses this time, he's in the company of all the elders of Israel. So he's not alone. He's with all of his friends. And again, he's up on a mountain. And this time, rather than being hidden in a cave, they find themselves on this like pavement made of sapphire. Go look this up. It's uh, Exodus 24, 9 through 11. And the text says on this weird, crazy, like bejeweled blue sidewalk that they beheld God and they ate and drank. So we have no human can see me and live, and we also have they beheld God and they ate and drank. 
and, and much, much more could be said about this, but, but I will say only this as a way of finishing up. These two stories, they speak to two kinds of spiritual experience that I think we all go through or will go through at various times in a life with God. Sometimes uh, God seems elusive, just passing by so that we, we can't see him and we can only get a glimpse of where he just was. And what that makes us feel is longing. And, and in a way, we're left unsatisfied and that's okay. And our desires become reoriented and we learn to see God's humble goodness for what it is. Um, and then at other times, God really is. He's just, he's right there and he's ready to be beheld. And the feeling that we get is one of full satisfaction. Like we can be satisfied when God uh, reveals himself to us. Uh, and we, we have so much satisfaction and joy in these moments that the only appropriate response is a feast. We're not uh, setting out and tracking down. We're, we're sitting down and we're feasting. And rather than fleeting, it's like a moment that you can remain in. But both of these are a part of life with God. And whether we behold and feast with him or we peek out to the most intense feeling of having just missed him, I want to say that both of these are still presence. Both of them are still the presence of God and both are what our souls need. Beheld or hidden, God is always present and never abandons us. Because I think God knows that in the end, his, his absence would do us in even worse than looking him uh, full in the face. And so now, uh, may we go with Jesus as the disciples did on the road to Emmaus. And may our hearts burn when he is near when we behold him uh, on the sapphire sidewalk and when we see more clearly all the things in scripture pertaining to himself as he walks down the dirt road with us. And, and may our eyes be opened in days when we behold him as he breaks the bread to feast with us. And may we linger long at that table and be satisfied. And when he inevitably vanishes from our sight, as he did from the disciples, leaving us with the strongest sense that he was just here and the deepest longing to see him again, may we follow that scent, that light, that essence, that pull that tugs us to the next place he has prepared for us. And as we keep finding ourselves in the places to which he keeps leading us, may we carry his goodness with us in our love for our neighbors and may we all get a glimpse of his glory in the end. Amen.